So when Matt asked me to preach, I asked him, well, is there anything specific you'd want me to talk about? And he said, yeah, why don't you talk to us about what it means to be a sent people? I said, okay, that's, we can do that. And I started thinking about where, where would we turn in the scriptures? There's so many places you could turn, right? You think of Jesus' great commission to his disciples. You can think of even, even way back in the early story of the scriptures as God calls Abram uh, and says, you know, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the nations, or I'm going to make you a nation so that you will be a blessing to the nations. Or you can think about so many stories from the book of Acts where you see Jesus telling his disciples, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's no shortage of going passages in the scriptures. But for whatever reason, I was drawn to this one in 1 Peter. Because you see, as Peter begins his letter, he's writing to a group of people that he identifies as elect exiles. If you read the first two verses of the book, that's how he addresses his audience. And he talks about these people who are being elect exiles. And by exile, he means those faithful to God who are scattered across the Roman Empire, and he names a bunch of geographic locations throughout what we would call Turkey today mostly, but it's the idea of God's people living in the context of an empire that is hostile to the reign of God, and he's calling these people to be faithful to God and to be faithfully present in the world where they are, and he describes these people as you who were born again into a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes this hope as one that's not made by human hands, that's undefiled and unfading, that's guarded in heaven for you. And he goes on into the letter to talk about what that means then for the church to be living into this new hope that is theirs, to be living in their place as a people made alive together with Jesus, rooted in him, and living in a context where that's not true of everyone. But there's a particular job that's theirs to do because of where they are and because of what is now true of them because of Jesus. And so we get to this section of the scripture, this section of, of this, uh, this letter of 1 Peter, and, and this image that he gives the church is this image of a spiritual house. And that's what I want us to consider this morning uh, as, as we come together in this place, as you welcome me as a guest among you. I know you at North Cross are in a season of discerning God's leading, of seeking a pastor. And I think this is a wonderful passage to consider for a church and or a pastor as you think about what it means to be faithful to God's calling and to be the church in the place where you are. So if we look at this passage, I want to offer... Uh, an image for you to help us understand what we're looking at. Have you ever seen one of those photo mosaics? Like the one I'm thinking of is like the big one of Abraham Lincoln that you see like as a whole mural of a wall where if you're standing far back, you see his face. But if you walk up close to it, you see it's actually this constellation of black and white photos from the Civil War, right? Pictures of all kinds of other things. But when you put them together in this artistic arrangement and you stand back, it's a picture of Abraham Lincoln. Or you've got him for all kinds of things. You know what I'm talking about, right? These, these murals. Well, this passage in 1 Peter, it reminds me of one of those mosaics because what we have here in this section of Peter's letter is actually a collection of eight Old Testament passages. They're mostly from Psalms and the prophets, but there's one from Exodus. Uh, and Peter has pulled these things together and arranged them very carefully into one coherent portrait of the church. And it's, it's a remarkable 
portrait. And actually, the longer you stare at it, the more remarkable it becomes. Because like the many things that make up a photo mosaic, each element here is an echo of the Old Testament. And it has its own story. It has its own rich treasure store of meaning. Each one is like a tip of an iceberg. And it would be well worth having a Sunday school class where you just take all eight and do the deep dive into what is each of those about and then pull them together. That would take hours. We certainly can't do that today. And zooming in on those is well worth doing. But given the time uh, that we have today, I just want us to stand back and gaze at the whole rather than get into each of the parts. Because the whole that we have is this picture of Jesus and his church. Or that is, even if we want to pull this toward our own lives today and here, it's a picture of Jesus and us that comes into focus when we take them all together as Peter has arranged for them. And the picture that begins to emerge is this. It's a blueprint of God's house on earth. And in this blueprint, there's Jesus as the cornerstone. See, the cornerstone was the choicest and most important, architecturally speaking, because it's the one from which everything else was measured. But then there we are, in this picture, as the many other stones, the living stones that are all being built up together with Jesus and upon Jesus into a spiritual house for God to live in. That's the picture. It's a temple picture. It's this new temple that God is building for himself on earth, which Peter portrays not as a stationary physical house made with bricks and mortar, but as a spiritual house, a living house that is the community of Christ and his people. And what he's getting at is this, is that we together with Jesus are God's home, the place of his presence on earth. And in this picture of God's home on earth, we see ourselves taking up this vocation of what Peter saw as priests and proclaimers. Priests in God's house, in God's house, and proclaimers of God's goodness in the world. So what are priests? Priests are those who tend to the house of the Lord, right? They're those who speak to God on behalf of others. They're those who bear the burdens of others and bring those burdens to God. They're those who give their lives to the work of hospitality, of preparing a place for God to be present and for others to meet God. I've seen many of you doing jobs here this morning that are taking up that priestly work of hospitality or even in hearing the announcement around needs. If you have any emotional or financial or relational spiritual needs, let us know. We're the church. We want to be here for you. That is the priestly vocation of the church being the body of Christ the building of Christ in the world. But it's not only priests. Peter says also proclaimers, right? If you look at verse 9, proclaimers of what? Of this, these mighty acts, right? These mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Proclaimers are those who experience the grace of God personally and then learn to tell the story. They learn to tell the story to themselves so that as we make sense of life, we're doing it in and with God. They learn to tell the story to their fellow followers of Jesus who need to be encouraged as the church does this one-anothering work. And they also learn to tell the story to those who do not yet know God, who've not yet known and experienced the grace of God 
the transformation of God's love. So here we have it, priests and proclaimers. Or in other words, spiritual friends to both God and other people. And that's our new God-given vocation in Christ as we see it come into focus in this picture that Peter arranges for us here. It's a vocation that fits our new God-given identity as Peter depicts it. This identity is a chosen people, precious possession of God, his home in the world. And Peter's addressing his readers saying, look, this is who you are. This is who you are in Christ. You're God's family. You're God's home. You are God's precious possession, chosen by God to be priests and proclaimers, spiritual friends to God and others. And Peter gives us two pastoral instructions about how we can grow up more and more into this God-given identity and vocation. And the first thing he says is that we must long for God himself above all else, the way an infant longs for milk. And the second thing he says is that we must come to Jesus as the cornerstone and let God build our lives upon him. So as you enter this new season together as a congregation, as you search for a new pastor who will lead you into it, my hope and prayer is that these two instructions would be a charge to you all. And I pray at the same time it would be a charge to me as well, even as I deliver it to you, because every church needs its pastor to heed these instructions, both yours and mine alike. And every pastor needs to do the same. What you long for, what you seek to build, what you build upon, where you aim these aspirations and desires will have everything to do with how vibrantly you live in to the calling to be pastor and church together in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. So let's look at this first instruction from Peter. We must long for God himself above all else, the way an infant longs for milk. Now, Peter uses the infant milk metaphor a little bit differently than the way it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. If you read like 1 Corinthians, for example, or if you read Hebrews, you'll see the image of milk used negatively, like in contrast to meat or food that's more substantive, right? Milk in those uses is sort of like diet food, right? It's not fully nourishing the way the full robust feast would be as it's contrasted with solid food. And the idea in those cases is that those are t people are too immature to be ready for the good stuff, meaning substantive training and responsibility that's fitting for more mature followers of Jesus. So they just get milk. But that's not the way Peter uses it here. This is a very different use of the milk metaphor. Peter's point in likening his audience to infants is not to call us or them immature. Rather, Peter wants his audience to be like infants in their one-track, uncomplicated appetite. When my son was six weeks old, he was hospitalized for breathing stuff. He had gotten uh, the RSV virus uh, at a really young age when his lungs were too little to be able to handle that. It developed into bronchiolitis. And so he was in the hospital and he had to be on that wall suction machine to keep his airways clear. And there was this one night when he was just kind of at his worst. And he was really struggling to breathe. And the, and the struggle to breathe was making him more and more agitated. And the doctors were all around him trying to get him to breathe, trying to do everything that they could think of to help him calm down 
so that he could just get the airflow that he needed. And they got to the point where they just turned to my wife and they're like, feed him. We've tried all the medicine stuff. Maybe he'll nurse. And the moment he nursed, he calmed down and he started to breathe. Six weeks old and the kid longed for milk more than air. That's an uncomplicated, one-track appetite. And Peter says to the church, look, the way a newborn baby craves milk, crave God. He is the pure spiritual milk that will nourish your life the way nothing else could possibly nourish your life. Crave him. And Peter says that this one-track appetite for feasting upon God himself is the key for us for growing up into our salvation, for growing up into the kind of people God has created and is calling us to be. And if you're anything like me, this is hard because, like me, your appetites are not so simple, right? You crave the same kinds of things I crave that we all crave. We crave achievement. We crave approval and security and love and relief from all sorts of creature and all sorts of creature comforts and all the various puzzle pieces that have to fit together to make up whatever version of the good life that you and I dream about, right? And the problem is when you and I crave so many things, all the cravings kind of get watered down because you can't crave everything that hard. It's just impossible. And to be totally honest, which I think we all need to be, there's nothing I crave the way an infant craves milk. There's nothing, there's no single thing I actually want the way my six-week-old son wanted that milk. I'm just too complicated. I'm too fragmented for that. And so are you, adults, right? You are. We are. But Peter says that the key to growing up into the mature version of ourselves, this version that God envisions, the version that's being sanctified and grown by God's grace. The key to that is to nurture our longing for God so that, as we, be, so that we begin to grow into more and more of a one-track appetite, a less complicated mix of appetites as we learn to hunger for God above all else. And so I would just want to encourage you as you search for a pastor, as you think about who might be that next person, as you pray about that, as you discern I would just submit to you, channeling Peter here, that the pastor's job is to lead the church in craving God above all else. That's what you want as a pastor, is one who will lead you in craving God. The church's job, I think, one way you could put it, is to actually want that from its pastor. So to the church, what, what do we want from our pastors, right? I know we all have uh, preferences. We have pet projects. Who doesn't? But the reality is what you, what everyone else needs, what the church needs, is a pastor who will crave God more than your approval, who will crave your holiness more than your happiness, who will crave your conforming to Christ more than your comfort in the status quo which is why this instruction is so important for both the pastor and the church because the pastor who craves God above all else is going to lead the church in wise and faithful ways, but the challenge is that the wise and faithful ways for the church that's following Jesus is to follow in the way of Jesus, which always goes to the cross. And the cross 
is about the least comfortable place in the world. The church that craves God above all else will want the right things from the pastor and will be willing to trust and follow him in a way of costly and glorious transformation, even when it pushes beyond the comfort zone, which it will if you're following Jesus. And so given that this doesn't naturally come to us, natural question to ask, how do we awaken that longing? If we're being honest, I don't crave anything the way an infant craves milk. Yet Peter's saying, crave God like that. I want to, but I don't. I aspire to that. I trust that God is bringing me along on a journey of, of awakening that in me. How do I go along on that journey? How do you nurture that appetite? That's such an important question. It's our experience of God that prompts our desire for God, not the other way around. That's what Peter says here. Notice what he says. He says, first... We must taste the goodness of the Lord. See, what's happening here is not that we're waiting passively for feelings of desire that are going to prompt our engagement with God. Rather, it's that we need an experience of God. We need to actually experience God who engages us in our worship, in our relationships, in prayer, in our meditation upon God's word, in our participation of the sacraments. We need to experience, to taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And so it's this participation and relationship with God that's going to sustain our love for God, not the other way around. If you're waiting for the good feelings before you start to engage, you might just wait forever. It's sort of like me and my fraught relationship with running. Because you see, I want to be a runner. The problem is I don't want to run. And if I wait to want to run, I'm not going to. And the times in my life where I've actually enjoyed running have been times where I pushed through, got over the hump, and started doing it until it caught on and until the desire to do it caught on. And there's something about the invitation to receive Jesus, to to embrace this life of faith and community. There's something about it that's like that because it's actually the love of God that animates us and it's not, a, it's not as much today about how are you feeling about it. It's about will you respond? Will you allow God to awaken in you that appetite? Because we need to taste and see the goodness of the Lord before we'll really crave him. Which is just another way of saying God's the one who does it. God's the one who does it. But you see, the way God does it is not mechanically as if we're robots and God flips on a switch one day to make us want to go. But rather, God engages us relationally as a father to children because God made us to be his creatures, his children who love him back, who respond to him, who pray to him, who cast our cares on him, who give thanks to him, who invite him into our hopes and our dreams and our planning, our decision-making for the future. We love because he first loved us. And so, Peter says, you've tasted that the Lord is good, long for him, like an infant longs for milk. And then he says this, the second point. Come to Jesus, the cornerstone, and let God build your life upon him. That's me paraphrasing what he says, but that's what he's saying here. Come to Jesus, the cornerstone, and let God build your life on him. The image here is an architectural one. 
The cornerstone is the choicest of all the stones. It's chosen for its perfect 90-degree angle at the corner of two walls. It's the stone you build everything else off of. And so choosing the right cornerstone is actually incredibly important, architecturally speaking. It's essential even. Because if you choose one that's, it's not just for aesthetic reasons, it's actually for structural reasons. Because if you choose one that's not perfect, you're going to build a wall that will eventually crumble. It has to be built off of the perfect right angle. And Peter here describes Jesus as that in the house of the Lord, the perfect right angle cornerstone off of whom everything else is measured and everything else is built. And he contrasts building this, um, he, he contrasts these two different kinds of building projects, if you will, that begin in two different ways. One is this building project that begins by receiving Jesus as the cornerstone, and then develops as God builds our life upon him. And then this other one is the one that begins with anything else, rejecting Jesus as the cornerstone, finding some other cornerstone to be the basic measure and building block of your life. And the pastoral instruction is just this. It's come to Jesus, the cornerstone, and let God build your life upon Christ. And it's important here that we recognize that in Peter's mind, there are only two responses that make any sense at all. One is receiving Jesus by faith, which looks like reordering everything else in life around him. And the other is rejecting Jesus, which is everything else. You see, the way Peter is understanding this, there's not a middle category that makes room for Jesus to fit at the edges of our lives as someone that we kind of appreciate, generally speaking, but don't take too seriously. There's not some middle category where Jesus fits nicely as an ornament on top of our already established ways of life that are built on other foundations. Because you see, for Peter, Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, like the creator of the universe who spoke into existence the heavens and the earth, who has come to be one of us, to take on human flesh and live in the earth as a human being and say, in, life is, in me is life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's who he is. He's God in person in our world, who was crucified and who was raised from the dead and who is now enthroned at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the heavens and the earth as king. And so it makes no sense for that Jesus to be anywhere other than the absolute center or the absolute foundation because he doesn't fit at the edges around any other center. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who the apostles proclaim him to be, then the only possible way to relate to him rightly is to receive him at the very center of our lives, to be the cornerstone, and to reimagine everything in light of him. This Jesus, the shamed, crucified Messiah is the one God values the most. He's the one God deems the most precious, despite the fact that the world judged him and continues to judge him by a very different method of valuation. And what Peter says is, come to him. Come to Jesus, the cornerstone. 
Let your lives be built upon him. Let your actions and your words and your daydreams and your plans for the future and your decisions and how you spend your time and how you spend your money be measured off of the perfect 90-degree cornerstone that God has judged worthy to be such a standard and a measure for us all. Entrust yourself to him and see what kind of life God will build. And Peter says, this is how we grow up. This is how we grow up into our vocation to be God's house in the world, our vocation to be God's people, to be priests and proclaimers of God's goodness in the world. Friends, God is faithful and kind, and my prayer for you at North Cross is that God's blessing would be upon you, that God would lead you in this way, that God would provide you, provide for you a pastor who will help build this church up as a spiritual house was built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the one who was crucified, who was raised, who is alive today and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit as one God now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son to unite all things in him. This one who lived a life of perfect faithfulness, who fulfilled your every command, this one who loved you and everyone else perfectly, the one who was crucified and was raised, who died in our place to be the savior for our sins, who was raised to be the first fruits of your new creation, the one who's given us your spirit and the one who is calling us home. Would you give us every grace and every gift we need to grow into our, our identity and our vocation to be the church as you're calling us to be, the spiritual house, your home on earth, where all of our neighbors may taste and see the goodness of the Lord. May all honor and glory be to you, O loving Father, forever and ever.